And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. It is Monday, September 27th. We have just one week left in this regular season, unless we get bonus baseball, possible game 163, which is certainly not out of the question. On this episode, we'll discuss the battle for the NL West Dodgers Giants, really shaping up to be a great one as we enter the final week. The NL Wild Card. Uh, less up for grabs in that second position, of course, with the Red Hot Cardinals. We'll dig into the NL MVP situation. Juan Soto is now part of that conversation, among a few other players who have strong cases. And, of course, we'll check in on the NL Cy Young race as well before we open up the mailbag. Ken, let's begin in the NL West. Giants enter the week with a two-game lead over the Dodgers. Schedule-wise, both teams off on Monday. The Giants kick it off this week with a three-game series in Arizona on Tuesday, and then three at home against the Padres to close it out. The Dodgers open with the Padres at home starting on Tuesday before closing out their season at home against the Brewers. Looking at those schedules, thinking about the form of these two teams, how do you see the NL West playing out here over the final days? Derek, I see the Giants holding on, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but two-game lead with six to play is not insignificant, and you've got three games at Arizona coming up, for the Giants, then you have the three against San Diego, a team that now is eliminated and might not be much in the mood to compete anymore. <laughs> we'll see about that. But as Andrew Baggerly wrote in The Athletic the other day, and I thought this was a brilliant way to put it, which I had thought of it myself, he said, the Giants have been chased by the baseball equivalent of Usain Bolt, and as the tape nears, they are not losing any ground. It's an astonishing accomplishment, considering that the Dodgers are what we all consider to be a super team. The Giants are a super team in their performance, but not necessarily in the players that they've assembled, right? It's not a team of stars. Some players are having extremely good years, but not Trey Turner and Max Scherzer and right down the line. Mookie Betts, you can name all those great Dodgers. So the fact that they're in this position and they really have yet to dip in a major way. That is so impressive to me. And I think we talked about this last week when at the start of September, late August, early September, they lost four in a row. Alex Wood goes on the COVID list. Cueto goes on the IL with an elbow problem. And I thought then, hmm, maybe that's the start of the fall or at least the decline. Didn't happen. They've had a monster September and here they are poised to win this division. Now, I know what a lot of fans are thinking. Both these teams are 100-win teams, and yet one of them is going to face possible elimination in a one-game 
wild card game against the hottest team in baseball, at least right now, the St. Louis Cardinals. Is that fair? No, it's not fair. Life is not fair. And baseball is not always fair. Now, under the current system, this is what it is. And the teams know this going in and, hey, they have to play it out accordingly. Would I prefer a best of three in that particular round? Yeah, I would. Because to see a season like this for either the Dodgers or Giants end in one game would be unjust. And let's face it, it could happen. The way the Cardinals are playing and with Adam Wainwright on the mound in that game, it is not out of the question on one day the Cardinals could beat the Giants or the Dodgers. So it's going to be a fascinating week. But right now, Derek, I've got to like the Giants and their chances of holding on. Yeah, and there was a question about the NL wildcard race that I'll pull out of the mailbag. We'll put it in our opening segment here. It was basically, what percentage would you give the Cardinals of upsetting either the Giants or the Dodgers in that one-game scenario? I mean, they're on a 16-game winning streak entering the final week, so I don't think anybody, even beyond the wildcard game, wants to see St. Louis right now. No, no one does at this moment. Now, they're not going to win out, I don't think. I don't think they're going to win every game that they play the rest of the way. And somebody calculated on Twitter today, it might have been Sarah Langs or Jason Stark, said if they win out, and that means Division Series, well, actually, Wildcard Game, Division Series, LCS World Series, it will be like 34 in a row. <laughs> now, I don't <laughs> think they're going to do that, but at this point, it's kind of like, mm, we'll see. But clearly, they have... A schedule now where Milwaukee is clinched. That's their next opponent. And then they have the Cubs, both at home. So I would assume that they're going to sustain their momentum to some degree, even if they don't win every game. And yeah, do I give them a chance in the wildcard game? I certainly do. Obviously, with the Dodgers, it would be Scherzer, most likely, that they'd be facing. And that's a tough challenge, no question about that. And Wainwright who has been really good, but is not Scherzer still. So, yes, I'd give them a chance. I'd give them a better chance against the Giants because they don't really have a Scherzer. Gossman was really good on Sunday, but I'm sorry, he's not Scherzer. And the Giants' bullpen is a little bit gassed right now, a little bit questionable, at least in my opinion. But it doesn't look like it's going to turn out that way. So I do give them a puncher's chance, if not even better than that. They might have a better chance than that. It's one game, man. It's baseball. The Arizona Diamondbacks can beat the Dodgers. <laughs> Anything can happen. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that all plays out. Yeah, I mean, this is shaping up to be a much more exciting race on the NL side, series of races, than we expected it to be. And the NLE is still up for grabs as well. I mean, we could see the Phillies overtake Atlanta in the final week of the season. That's absolutely on the table as well. Well, Derek, this race, too, is interesting. And I was in San Diego last night for the Braves-Padres game, and it was one of the best games we've had on our air all year long. The Braves came back from 7-3. They came back again, 8-7. Solaire, three-run homer, go-ahead double in the 10th. It was a game they had to have, and they got it. Now, they've got bullpen problems, like everybody else, it seems. They also, rotation-wise, are not as deep as you'd like to be, but neither are the Phillies. And the Phillies' bullpen problems are even more pronounced. The difference in this race between the NL race between the Dodgers and Giants is that these teams are going to play each other starting Tuesday night. And the Phillies all along in the month of September have said, listen, 
All we want is a chance going into that series, and mathematically, they will have a chance. They will be able, if they sweep, to overtake the Braves, and they went two out of three to keep this thing really going. So, I give the Phillies a chance here. It's not a great chance, because the Braves still do have the lead. They have that outstanding game. If they need to play it against Colorado, Colorado would fly to Atlanta on Monday if it is necessary to decide the NL East race. The great pitchers for both teams are lined up. Wheeler and Morton in Game 1, Freed and Nola in Game 2. So this is going to be a really competitive, emotional, dramatic series. And that is going to clearly tell us where that race stands after that series is over. And frankly, neither one of these teams is all that good, right? Look at them. The winner of this division is going to be an 86-87 win team at best. But here they are. And the Phillies have played well, or at least done well, to get to this point because their team is extremely flawed. The Braves, you saw what they did at the deadline. They were a team that was 500 through July, if not that, maybe even a little bit below. They lost Acuna. Anthopolis supplemented them, and here they are. So it's going to be a great race down the stretch with that division. Yeah, so much of what Atlanta has been able to do this season has been the result of Freddie Freeman, Austin Riley, and Ozzie Albies all shouldering very heavy workloads. All three of those guys now above the 30 homer mark, or at least at that mark. And I think it's going to be interesting to see if they have anything left in the tank if they do make it to the postseason. I mean, any team that gets in is dangerous enough to do damage. That lineup, even without Acuna, is still an above-average lineup. They would match up with the Brewers in the first round, so they'd see some really difficult starting pitching matchups. But I think when you get as much balance as Atlanta does and you make all those acquisitions to rebuild the outfield at the deadline, you're still giving yourself a chance. Derek, it's interesting you mentioned the games played. Freeman, Riley, and Swanson have all played, I believe, 153 games through Sunday. If not that number exactly, it's right there. They lead the National League in games played. Now, should they make the playoffs, they would face the Brewers. And I would expect fatigue would not be that big an issue for them simply because it's adrenaline time. Now, if they keep advancing, yeah, I guess at some point they could run out of gas. And maybe it even happens in the first round. But you're right. They have ridden those guys really hard. And Freeman and Riley as MVP candidates, we can talk about this too. They've played a ton more games than any of the others. So... That's really impressive, and they've had to do this to stay where they are. Now, the one thing I should mention also, after the teams play each other, the Phillies and Braves, Philly closes the season with the Marlins, and Atlanta closes the season at home with the Mets. So, seemingly easy opponents, but again, we've seen these things happen over the years. The Marlins knocked out the Mets that one year. You never know. Yeah, division rivals find a way to be pesky when they need to be pesky, so you can't take anything <laughs> so for true. granted. Uh, but Juan Soto came up in the conversation, I think, last time we talked about Bryce Harper versus Tatis for the NL MVP award. And Soto is really putting together now a full season resume that stacks up favorably to Harper. Whereas previously when we spoke, it was during the second half, they've been 1A, 1B in terms of, of war. Soto's been so good that he's now even with Bryce Harper in terms of Fancraft's war now. Of course, if, if both the Phillies and the Nats don't make the playoffs, then that kind of levels the playing field as far as Soto versus Harper and even Soto versus Tatis. Is it realistic that Soto could win the NL MVP award? 
Derek, I would say it's possible. And I'm a voter in this category, and I have to keep evolving in my thinking and paying attention and keeping an open mind as we go forward. Now, the votes for all of the awards, if people don't know, they have to be taken before the start of the playoffs. You have to submit your ballot before the start of the playoffs. And I won't even look at this until the season is over and we have the full resumes in front of us. And actually, in the National League, picking the top 10 is going to be difficult because there are any number of ways you can go. There have been some amazing performances. As for Soto, my preference is my MVP to come from a contending team. Now, it's my opinion, and it's just my opinion, that those players perform under a different level of pressure as the season progresses, right? Juan Soto has not had that because they undid the team at the deadline, and frankly, they've not been a competitive team. Now, you can argue, and people will argue, that in the lineup that Juan Soto is in, what he is doing is even more impressive than Harper or Tatis or anyone else because it's somewhat barren compared to what those guys have around them. But I don't know. Soto had a good first half, not a great first half. Maybe if he has a great first half, they don't sell. I don't know. So I'm still inclined to give more weight to those on the contenders. Now, there are other names here. They won't be necessarily in the top three, but other guys that we'll be talking about in this race. Freeman and Riley, as I just mentioned, games played, high production. Not the same rate stats as the others, but really good production. Castellanos and Vado in Cincinnati. Brandon Crawford in San Francisco. I don't know how you ignore him. Max Muncie is tailed off in September. Trey Turner. Now, there's never been an MVP for, who has been traded in the middle of the season. But he at least will deserve some votes. And then there are some starting pitchers who at least deserve consideration. Now, I don't love putting starting pitchers on the MVP ballot. But when you look at what Scherzer, Burns, and Wheeler have done, they at least have to cross your mind. So if you add all those names I just mentioned together, it's more than 10. <laughs> so that ballot is going to be extremely interesting to fill out. And I sort of look forward to it. And I sort of don't. Understandable because, yeah, tough task uh, this year in particular. Uh, looking at those pitchers just for NL Cy Young purposes, the more I look at it, Ken, the more I think Corbin Burns is going to win despite the incredible finish we're seeing from Max Scherzer with the Dodgers. You know, Fangraph's war backs it up, but it's beyond that because I think if you go Burns versus Scherzer, if you say, yeah, Zach Wheeler just barely on the outside looking in, and sure, Walker Bueller, as we talked about last week, he's thrown a lot of innings like Wheeler has. Burns and Scherzer are comparable in terms of workload, but then Burns has the edge in strikeout rate, walk rate, and home run rate, and he's got that edge over everybody else in the conversation as far as those skills go. So for me, I think I'm going to be surprised if Corbin Burns doesn't end up winning the NL Cy Young. I would agree with that, Derek, and I'm still just a touch troubled by it. And when I say a touch, it's because, obviously, Corbin Burns has had an amazing season, and it's really, in some ways, a historic season. What bothers me again, and I hate to sound like a broken record, but hey, sorry folks, the innings thing. Wheeler, as of this recording has 40 more innings than Corbin Burns. Now his numbers aren't as good. Of course they're not as good because he's pitched that much more and he doesn't have the same strikeout rate. And I get that. But 40 innings, folks, 
is almost six starts of seven innings each. That's an astonishing difference in workload. And it bothers me that now we're more caught up in rate stats and, yes, even war. Now, granted, what Burns has accomplished in a more limited workload stands out in terms of war because he's packed in so much quality. But I still believe that volume matters. So how it plays out, it will play out, I expect, just as you described it, Derek. And I think Burns has a slight edge over Scherzer simply because Scherzer had that rough last start. And Burns has carried this through the whole season. But that innings discrepancy, again, I'll just say I'm just a little bit troubled. Not a lot, because when Burns wins, and I do think he will, I'll be perfectly happy. And he's a deserving guy. But Wheeler, man, what he's done in 200-plus innings, that's impressive, too, in a different way. Yeah, I'll, I'll close it out by saying I didn't think Zach Wheeler had that level of a ceiling. I've always liked him. I always thought he was a really good pitcher, but I thought the you know the four to five war pitcher is the, the ceiling he was going to hold throughout his time in Philadelphia, seeing him at this level, certainly a pleasant surprise for them. Uh, it'd be an even better surprise if the Phillies do, in fact, find their way into the postseason. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Let's go to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. Two ways to reach the show. You can, of course, call us 646-543-7072. Leave us a voicemail. Or you can email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. I pulled one part of this email for the first part of the show email came from Nick. The first part of his question that we didn't answer yet is, what's the most surprising thing you can find with the teams who were really close to the NL wildcard spot and let the Cardinals get back into this race? And he's referring to teams like the Reds, the Padres, and the Mets, because just a month or so ago, it was those three teams that we were focused on, mostly Reds, Padres, as the team taking the place that the Cardinals have claimed here over the final month of the season. I'm going to throw the Padres out of the equation, Nick. Clearly, they are the most shocking collapse of the season, more so than the Mets, more so than really any team. That's the biggest surprise, okay? But I maybe am more surprised in a sense of the way this unfolded by the Reds. And if you remember, start of September, we were all looking at the Reds and saying, wow, they've got the easiest schedule. They should be able to pull this off. And they were at one point, in the wild card lead. But 
they have not pulled this off. And they lost the eight straight series. Actually, it was nine that they did not win. There was one tie in there. And that surprised me. Now, the the Padres thing is a whole story for another time. But the Reds, even with their bullpen problems, their defensive issues, the different flaws that they had, I just thought because of the schedule and everything else that was in front of them, they'd be able to pull this off. Votto was really hot. But what happened was Winker never came back. They lost Naquin as well. Bullpen issues continued. And they just did get there. And the Cardinals made everybody look bad by the way they played. And they destroyed the Reds. They destroyed the Padres face-to-face or head-to-head as well as just in the normal course of things. And that's the story, what the Cardinals did. But I'm sure the Padres feel this way and I'm sure the Reds feel this way. What might have been, right? Because both those teams were well positioned to get that second spot. Yeah. And I mean, in the Mets, if we go back to March, they had expectations that were sky high, not unlike the Padres. I think the Mets were a consensus favorite to win the NL East. And of course, the Jacob deGrom injury, that was sort of the beginning of things unraveling on them. I didn't expect them to crash as hard as they did. I didn't expect... Who's going to win more games this season, the Mets or the Rockies, to be an actual question we'd be thinking about during the final week of the season? Derek, that's a great point. And I will say this about injuries, because this is going to be the excuse for a number of teams, right? This has been a year of injuries. The Mets can certainly point to any number of them, starting with DeGrom, but they had others as well. And the Padres, too. Our starting pitching fell apart. Okay. But. I'm going to show you why that is not a valid excuse, or at least I'll try to tell you. The Cardinals, they lost Michaelis, Flaherty, Hudson, and Carlos Martinez for extended stretches, as well as Jordan Hicks. That's a lot of pitching. The Braves lost Acuna, maybe one of the top five players in the game. And what do those teams do? They found ways, both internally and externally, to supplement what they had, and to somehow get through this thing. The Cardinals, they traded for Lester and Hap. That has proven to be, in Lester's case in particular, quite the shrewd pair of acquisitions. The Braves, well, their deadline, well chronicled. They got the four outfielders, not three, four. And if you remember, Peterson was first. He came on July 15th. And then on July 30th, Eddie Rosario, along with Soler and Duval, And Rosario was hurt at that time. He did not even return from that abdominal strain until August 27th. But once he was back, he got hot. And then suddenly Peterson became more of a bench guy. They wanted the extra depth. It paid off for them. So while injuries are an excuse, I get it. Other teams had injuries too. All teams had injuries. And it was how you responded and how you handled your depth that kind of defined your season. At least in the cases of the Braves and the Cardinals. Yeah, it really feels like it's been a buyer's market at the trade deadline for the last four or five deadlines. And I think both of those teams did a great job of taking advantage of that this summer to fill their greatest areas of need. We've got an email from Matt, which I would describe as a, a trifle of an email. You know, the very layered dessert with the lady fingers, and then you got the <laughs> custard, and then you got the fruit. And if it's uh, Rachel from Friends, you got peas and carrots because the pages got stuck together. But it was a great email, had lots of ideas. And I just wanted to pull one idea from it and ask you about this because we have the CBA negotiations coming up uh, during the offseason. 
obviously those are underway already. But part of this proposal that Matt sent us was a suggestion for a 120 game regular season. And I'm just curious if it's even remotely possible that a shorter regular season, even if it's only six games shorter or 10 games shorter than the 162 we get now, is that even a reasonably likely possibility? Is that something that either side actually wants to put on the table? Not 120. And I don't even expect anything below 162. Now, when you talk about expanded playoffs, as they will do in the course of these negotiations, it would seem that if you're going to do that, it might be smart to go back to 154 or even to some number in the 140s. The reason I don't see that ever happening is the loss of revenue from the regular season. So if it's 154, you're losing 10 games, 10 home dates for owners, 10 days of pay for players. And I don't see either side, either side, wanting to give up that kind of revenue. Then the TV money gets cut as well. Everything gets cut 10%, or not 10%, whatever that percentage is of games that you're missing. So given what we've seen from both sides over the years, which is they want to max out on what they're earning, again, players and owners, I just don't see that kind of reduction taking place. Now, there has been talk of 154 just talk and it would behoove the sport to take a serious look at this given the injuries that do occur over 162 given the difficulties of getting through 162 that we've seen we all love 162 but i think fans could live with 154 maybe could even live with 144 if that was the number 148 whatever it might be so if it ever goes in that direction it would be a very modest cut. It would never go, in my opinion, to 120. And I know that Matt had these suggestions of really expanded playoffs with 120. I get it. And it's kind of a cool idea. I just don't see it ever happening in this sport. I like to dream on utopian baseball scenarios. And I think the first rule of, of making them is making sure that the actual duration of the season fits the parameters of something that can happen. Because if you do cut it too much, you kind of just eliminate the possibility of your utopia ever happening before you even get all the way through it, right? I think 144 sounds like the lowest number we'd ever see, but yes, I don't know. Even that seems like too much. And I think it's complicated by something you brought up on the show a couple of weeks ago, the TV deals, the, the regional sports networks. And the contracts they have with this issue with blackouts, I wonder how much that plays into even being limited into how much you could shorten up the regular season because those networks pay a lot of money for the TV rights and they want to sell ads and fewer games means fewer ads. And I, I think that creates another problem too if you're going to try and whittle some games off of the schedule. I think you can pull it off with the national contracts because you'd be giving them more playoffs. And that is what it is valued most by the national broadcasters. I can speak to that because I work for Fox and I know that the playoffs are what we value most. The playoffs in the All-Star game. So I guess from that perspective, yes, but you're right, Derek. That's a great point about the regional broadcasters, the ones that carry the local games or the team's games. I don't know how you could justify with them pulling games when a number of these clubs have long-term deals with whatever the carrier might be. It's complicated. I do think if it was pulled back to 154, that's reasonable because fans wouldn't really notice the difference. And 
the way the season evolved would still be a lengthy six-month thing. Yes, there would be reductions all around, but it wouldn't be drastic, right? Eight games out of 162 is not that big. But even that, I don't see it happening anytime soon. We appreciate the email from Matt nonetheless, because anything that could make baseball better is absolutely worth thinking about. Uh, We got an email from Bill, and Bill wanted to know, last week we were talking about the Hall of Fame and the standard used for players who were suspected of using steroids. Bill's question is, why does Tony La Russa get a pass? He's in the Hall of Fame as a manager, but yet some of his most successful years were with the Oakland A's and the St. Louis Cardinals, where his best players were either PED guys or suspected PED guys. Why the double standard? Bill, this is a fair question. And La Russa was a manager of teams that we know had players that used performance-enhancing drugs. Now, neither La Russa nor Selig was elected by the writers. And perhaps it would have been different if that is where their candidacies were considered. They were elected by forms of the Veterans Committee. In LaRusse's case, he has said over the years that this is the way it was, and in his case, he wasn't a policeman. They weren't checking guys constantly for what they were doing off the field. He most recently said this to Graham Bensinger in a radio interview in 2020, and his position has been something like, Maybe you put asterisk next to these guys' names. We knew this happened, but maybe they should go in with some kind of denotation that that was the era and that was the way it was with those players. So he has defended himself. Selig's position has always been, we didn't know. He's not entirely wrong when he says that. The media wasn't as fast to pick up on this, including myself, as we should have been. The clubs certainly were not central baseball, meaning Major League Baseball. No, they did not pick up on it quickly either. Maybe in the cases of some of those parties, they did not want to pick up on it quickly. Maybe they didn't want to look. But I do believe to some extent that is true. And then once the problem was known, it became a process to getting the union to agree to testing. And it really took the entire sport getting dragged before Congress before everyone woke up and said, oh, we have to do this. Now, to keep Selig out, to keep LaRusa out on this one particular thing, the steroid issue, would be to sell the rest of their careers short. LaRusa had a great impact on the sport. Tremendous manager. We all know that. Selig, as much as a lot of people don't like him and have real problems with him as the guy who presided over the steroid era and the cancellation of the 1994 World Series during that 1994-95 strike, he did also help implement a lot of innovations that were good for the game and live on in the game today. Talking about interleague play, the wild card, of course, the expansion of the playoffs, video replay, like it or not, it was something that was needed. The two rounds of expansion, the relocation from Montreal to Washington of the Nationals, then the Expos. All these things took place under his watch, as well as the introduction of revenue sharing, which was something that was necessary for the lower revenue clubs. Was he a perfect commissioner? Of course not. No one's going to sit here and say that. But when you're talking about the Hall of Fame and impact on the game, he clearly had an impact on the game, as did La Russa. So, I don't have a problem with either of them being in it as long as players are getting in as well. Now, some people say, well, whoa, how 
how do you keep Bonds and Clemens and even McGuire out if these guys are in? Again, fair question. And those players are decided on by the writers, at least at first. So I've explained this a lot of times. I now vote for most of these players. I didn't always. And it's a really tough call. I don't feel comfortable going either way with it. But I do understand why Seelig and LaRusse are in. And I also understand why people would say, hey, there's hypocrisy there. That's not right. Again, two different voting bodies. That's not excusing anything, but that is the reality of it. And I will say this as well, in conclusion. LaRusse has talked about an asterisk. There's never going to be an asterisk. But fans have their own mental asterisk. They know. They know what certain players did and what they didn't do, or they might have their suspicions on certain players and not. And you know what? That's always going to be part of those players' legacies, and there's no running from that. Yeah, so we had a related question that came in from Paresh, and Paresh was pointing out that for football and basketball, the direction given to those who are selecting Hall of Famers is a little bit different. So for basketball... The purpose of the honors committee is to review carefully the selected finalist basketball record before casting a vote in favor of or against enshrining the finalist in the Basketball Hall of Fame. For football, the Hall of Fame's bylaws stipulate that only a player's on-field achievements are considered as a criteria for enshrinement. And Parage points out for basketball, Kobe Bryant was a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer, but if it were baseball, his sexual assault case would have come into play and there would have been a whole back-and-forth conversation about it. So the question is, should baseball take a cue from the other major sports and only consider the individual's baseball record? And I should say, only ask the BBWA members to consider individuals' baseball records and on-field achievements for their vote. Because it it does give you a totally different lens by which you're choosing players when you look at how other sports handle their Hall of Fames. Bryce, this is a great point. And... I don't know that I would be in favor of that, and I don't know that it would ever happen because the baseball hall sets the rules, and this is the way the rules have been for years and years, and I don't see them turning back on those rules now. But one, it would be a heck of a lot simpler if we were just judging on playing record, and even then, there would be fierce arguments over certain players. I can think of Omar Vizquel as one, right? He'd be a guy that we would argue about regardless, and... The arguments then, though, would be purely about statistics and comparing eras and all the things that we love to talk about when it comes to Hall of Fame voting. That said, there is part of me that doesn't mind the character, integrity, sportsmanship element. And the reason I say that is because, as a friend of mine once pointed out, the Hall of Fame and getting elected to the Hall of Fame, that's a privilege. It's not a right. And I don't mind it being like that. That, that to me, kind of rings true. Now, the problem is people will apply different standards to character, integrity, and sportsmanship. It's an entirely subjective thing. And where if you're just judging playing performance, it's more objective. There's still going to be subjectivity in it. So I don't see a changing parade. I understand your point, and and there's some validity to it. But I don't mind it this way, even though it complicates things incredibly as we vote. 
yeah, I think it was a really interesting email to send along, just given the differences and how the other sports uh, handle their nominations for the Hall of Fame. Thanks a lot for that email, Parish. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. We got a question here from Benjamin, who actually grew up reading your work in the Baltimore Sun, Ken. Benjamin writes, Camden Yards is by any measure one of the best ballparks in baseball, not only now, but in all of history. It's on par with the greatest cathedrals to baseball that have ever been built. So why, 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 why did MLB give a second All-Star game to the park formerly known as Safeco Field before Camden Yards gets to host a second All-Star game? Is it not enough that Camden Yards was the site of the infamous Cito Gaston snub when he left Hall of Fame pitcher Mike Mussina in the bullpen while Dwayne Ward, Gaston's own closer, <laughs> pitched. Ken, what does Baltimore have to do to finally get another all-star game at Camden Yards? Benjamin, the answer is simple. Resolve the Masson dispute. Now, first of all, I appreciate your kind words and reading me over the years because if you read me in the Baltimore Sun, it's going back more than two decades at this point. I can't believe I'm saying that, but it's true. <laughs> The Camden Yards All-Star Game issue is one that rankles Baltimore fans, and I don't blame them, because the points Benjamin makes are correct. Other cities have gotten a second All-Star Game before Camden Yards, and Camden Yards remains one of the crown jewels of the sport. It's just beautiful. It's one of my favorite parks. I know I'm a little biased because I worked there so many years, but it is a gem, and it does deserve, the fans and the city do deserve, another All-Star Game. The Masson dispute, it's a court battle that's gone on since 2014, and it relates to the Orioles-owned network. They own the majority of Masson, the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network, and they owe the Nationals a certain portion of rights fees, and they've been disputing what these rights fees should be. They've been arguing about it forever, back and forth in court, on and on it goes. I've always written about it as baseball's version of the Hundred Years' War, because it doesn't ever seem to end. Now, Commissioner Rob Manfred has denied there's any connection between Baltimore not getting an all-star game and 
the Orioles' position in the Masson dispute. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that to be the case. If there was no Masson dispute, I think there would be an all-star game, or there would have been an all-star game in Baltimore by now. So once that gets resolved, if it ever gets resolved, I do believe there will be another game in Baltimore. I know the Orioles really wanted the game in 16, because that would have been the year before the 25th anniversary of the opening of Camden Yards in 1992. It went to actually Washington that year, and... Baltimore also wanted the game when it was going to get moved out of Atlanta. And, of course, it went to Colorado instead. There are only three teams that haven't hosted an All-Star game since 1993. Only three other teams, I should say. Tampa Bay and Oakland, obviously because of their stadium situations. And Toronto. Toronto is due a game, too. And they don't have any problems with anybody else (laughs) that is keeping them from getting a game so it's not just the Orioles but it does stand out and I know again it's something that is a real sore spot with folks in Baltimore and rightly so it's a little ridiculous already that one of the crown jewels of the sport which had a great game by the way in 93 has not had one since yeah, I think it is very strange because uh, Camden Yards often comes up uh, at the top of people's lists or near the top of people's list for favorite ballparks they've been to. You hear uh, Oracle Park in San Francisco up there a lot. You hear PNC Park up there, and you also hear Camden Yards, aside from some of the classics, Fenway and Wrigley, of course, as well. Uh, let's get to a couple more questions. This is another park question, Ken. Besides the obvious, you mentioned the Rays and the A's, their stadium issues, and a reason why they haven't hosted an All-Star game. Who could be the next MLB team in line to construct a new ballpark? This question comes from Dan. Dan, the Rays and A's must come first and will come first, I would expect. But there are other cities that are at least talking about it. One is Anaheim and the Angels. And they've talked about this big development complex that Artie Moreno wants around Angel Stadium. And as part of that, it sounds like they're either going to renovate Angel Stadium or tear it down and build an entirely new one. So that's one possibility. The other one that has been discussed of late, even though Kauffman Stadium is one of the beautiful parks in our game, is Kansas City. And the idea of maybe building a downtown ballpark in Kansas City instead of one that's kind of on the highway like Kauffman is. And they have a new owner now in John Sherman. And it's something that I know, and I'm sure people in Kansas City know better than I, but it's at least been discussed. So in many other cases, the ballparks are beautiful, doing just fine. But those are two where it's possible in the coming years where we might see something. And by the way, before I forget, Derek, I want to go back to the 93 All-Star game. Because for people who don't know and who might not have understood what Benjamin was talking about with the Cito Gast and Mike Messina thing, I'll give a quick history lesson. And it actually is something I love talking about because it's my all-time favorite baseball controversy. It was totally harmless, although Cito might not have thought so. So what happened was the Blue Jays and Orioles were big rivals back then. They were the two best teams in the AL East. And that year, the Jays were coming off a World Series appearance. And the team was stacked with Blue Jays. Understandably so. Cito might have gone a little too far. Whatever. That's the manager's prerogative back then. And the Orioles fans were upset that so many Blue Jays were going to be in Camden Yards when they didn't like the Blue Jays very much. And in that game, 
in the ninth inning, Mike Messina warmed up and did not get into the game. Now, it turned out later that Messina warmed up on his own, which ticked off Cito Gaston no end. Because what happened was the fans were calling for Messina to enter the game. Messina was a young pitcher then. He was just really at the start of his great career. And when (laughs) the American League won the game and got booed off the field because Messina had not entered the game. So (laughs) think about that. The home team gets booed off the field at the All-Star game. First of all, who even boos at an All-Star game? (laughs) But it happened that night. And then the next day, Orioles players, David Segui and Harold Reynolds, my colleague at MLB Network, they went on the record and ripped Messina, their teammate, for showing up Cito Gaston. It was an all-time great flare-up. <laughs> wow. I, I didn't yeah, I didn't know there were so many layers to that story. So I appreciate <laughs> you great. throwing that one out there because I was not as familiar with that. I was uh, about nine years old, I think, at the time of the 93 All-Star game. So just a little bit before I started watching the Midsummer Classic. Uh, thanks a lot for that email, by the way, Benjamin. Nice trip down memory lane there. I had one more question about the Rays from Kyle. Kyle wanted to know, I was wondering what the hell is up with the Rays' planned split season move. I just don't see the logic behind it. The plan not only isolates the most ardent fans by taking half of their baseball season away, but it also seems like a logistical nightmare with the players having to play in two different home ballparks and two different countries. Could you perhaps elucidate the logic, or are you as equally baffled? I know the logic. I am baffled. And when I say I know the logic, at least I understand what they're thinking about. Clearly, Tampa Bay has not been that supportive of the franchise. Now, I would suggest it's because the stadium is in the wrong place. It should be in Tampa, not St. Petersburg. And that's the heart of the issue. But what the Rays are thinking, and this is where I think it becomes somewhat difficult to imagine. Two new ballparks, smaller ones, 35,000 seat type ballparks. One in the Tampa, St. Pete area, one in Montreal. They play in Tampa St. Pete, I guess, at the start of the season and the end of the season. I'm not sure exactly how this works. And then in the middle, the hot summer months, they'd be in Montreal. The reason why I don't see it making sense is kind of what you're alluding to there. You're talking about players having to live in two different places, get homes in two different places, have their families in two different places. Now, whether this comes to reality or not, that's going to be an issue that the union, the players' union, is going to have at least some say about, and I'm sure a lot of say about, because that's kind of a hard, not kind of a hardship, it's a hardship on players, and it's a little unnecessary if you think about it. Why not just build a good stadium in Tampa Bay and see if it works there? Well, for whatever reason, the Rays don't want to go down that path exclusively. They do have the capability and the group in Montreal that is ready to go. And that's why they're entertaining it. Whether it ever comes to fruition, who knows? Whether it's simply perhaps some leverage to get Tampa Bay and that area to build them a stadium that they would use 81 dates a year. It's not entirely clear to me. But they are serious about it. They are going to advertise on it during the playoffs. And right now, they see it as their best option. Yeah, there was a story from Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. There's going to be a sign added to the back wall at Tropicana Field for the postseason to showcase the plan to split future seasons between Tampa Bay and Montreal. What a weird announcement. That just that 
seems like a fever dream. That doesn't seem like a real thing that would actually happen. But yes, that is happening. So if you see that sign during the postseason, that is what's going on there. Now, I should say, Derek, the positive is you get back to Montreal. That's a good thing. Montreal badly wants a team back, and it would be cool to see games and the sport back in Montreal. Also, if this is what it takes to keep the sport in Tampa Bay viable, okay. So I don't want to be entirely negative. I just don't see it as being practical. No, I just think the players would be so opposed to that, and it would be really difficult to attract free agents. I know the Rays aren't necessarily a splashy team in free agency as it is, but can you imagine reaching free agency and you know, choosing to sign your big deal in a situation like that? This doesn't seem like one that a lot of players would willingly subject themselves to. Before we go, I'm going to remind everybody two ways to reach the show for future weeks. 646-543-7072 is the number if you'd like to leave us a voicemail. The email address is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Ken, we've got a great final week of baseball lined up. We spent most of this show talking about the NL. The battle for the final spots in the AL is going to be a good one, too. Oh, no doubt. And the only reason we skipped the AL for this show is because the Yankees and Red Sox are playing as we tape. And we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and say something dumb. But it certainly looks like at this point, Tampa Bay will be the number one seed. Houston's kind of sputtered. I thought at one point, they play this week, Tampa Bay and Houston, that maybe that series would really be meaningful for the top overall record. Doesn't look like it will be. The White Sox are in. So it looks like White Sox-Astros first round. Tampa Bay versus the Yankees or Red Sox or Blue Jays or Mariners (laughs) in the next round. And yes, that's going to be a fascinating series and playoffs too, because it's like the NL, where the West team is likely to face the West team in the wild card if if the Giants or Dodgers survive the wild card game. And the same would go in the East. In fact, it might be in the East where it automatically sets up that way if two East teams play in the wild card game. Yeah. It's going to be fantastic baseball here over the final week. Uh, If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review the show, we'd greatly appreciate that. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic already, you can get one 50% off for the first year at theathletic.com slash baseball show. This, of course, is a great time to sign up for a subscription. That is going to do it for this episode of The Athletic Baseball Show. For Ken Rosenthal, I am Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Tuesday with Starkville. Have a great day. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app. 